As we come to the scripture now, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And thus we pray, make us know your ways and teach us your paths. For we know that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. Amen. Turn please to 2 Kings in chapter 5. 2 Kings in chapter 5, please. Long passage. I want to read all of it, and I want you to listen, if you will, in terms of how does this show us the grace of God? 2 Kings chapter 5, please. Hear the word of God. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, that is by Naaman, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on, the, on, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. You got it. Naaman, commander, great man in Syria, uh, has leprosy, a girl who works for his wife, who's from Israel, who was captured in one of the raids, says to him, uh, there's, a, there's a man in, 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 in Samaria that can heal you. He tells his boss, who's the king, He's sort of prime minister, I suppose. So he tells his boss, who's the king, the king says, all right, I'll write you a letter then. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. That's about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. You can only imagine the worth of it, millions. And 10 changes of clothes. This isn't sort of jeans. This is stuff that you'd wear uh, at the most dressed up occasions. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how uh, he is seeking a quarrel with me. So, so the king of Israel reads this letter and sees it almost as a threat uh, because he can't do, because he knows he can't do, what this other king of Syria has uh, asked him to do. And, and, and so he's now thinking in political terms that this is just a, a ploy so that the king of Assyria will have another reason to come and raid Israel and take more of our people. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away his way saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me uh, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. All right, you got that. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, that is, Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. So get what he's doing here. He's not taking any of the millions that Naaman brought. And he, that is Naaman, urged him to take it, but he refused. And that refusal is like, no, 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 no. All right, it's a huge, strong 
emphasis, refusal. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load full of earth. So he's saying, you're not going to take what I'm going to give you, so I want you to give me some dirt. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, that is in Syria, the pagan worship place, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, which he'll be required to do because of his job. The Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw uh, someone running after him, he got down from his chariot, from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two festal garments. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. Looking at tens of thousands of dollars here. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two festal garments and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a... Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Now, it's fascinating to me always when I read these narrative portions, historical portions, narrative portions of the, of the scripture, the Old Testament especially, and see how much time is taken for particular incidents. And I'm always asking why this incident, why this much space? First and second Kings covers maybe 600 years of history. And we have this whole page in these very short number of pages for 600 years of history about this. And the question is Why? The answer is, the Holy Spirit wants us to sit up and take notice of something. What is that something? As I said earlier, the gospel is this, that we're saved by grace alone, nothing else, through faith alone, nothing else, in Christ alone, no one else. That's the gospel. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. Alone, alone, alone. All right? Now, we, we need, you see, to be saved, rescued, that is, uh, reconciled to God, that is, forgiven our sins, that is, granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven um, because of our sin. We know that our sin generates, creates two debts for us. You see, we've been created in the image of God. And, and that's the best image in whom to be created. There's no better, there's no more dignity, there's nothing better than to be one who reflects God because God is perfect. There isn't anyone better to reflect than God. And so that's the greatest, if you will, creature that can ever be to be one who's created in the image, one created to reflect God. Any other reflection would, would, would be lesser. And so you see, that's the privilege that we have as human beings to, to be created in the image of God, to 
reflect him. The problem is we haven't. The problem, as you remember from reading the scripture in Genesis chapter 3, is that Adam and Eve sinned against God. They sinned against God because they fell for the temptation, which is you can be as God, which means you can be the one to determine what's good and evil and follow your own way. God is the determiner of good and evil, and we are to reflect his definition of that. And, and, and so to the degree that we don't is the degree to which we don't reflect him, to the degree that we're lesser. But that, you see, is sin. It's not simply just a, a lifestyle choice, this, this, this turning away from God. It, it's sin. It's an offense to God. It not only hurts us, but, but it's an offense to him. And, and we create a debt when we sin, and this debt is created in, in two categories or two ways, we could say. The first debt is the debt of obedience that we owe. In order to reflect God well, we are to obey him. We're to, to be the people he calls us to be. We're going to do what he tells us to do. He says, if you want to reflect me, this is how you're to live. Disobedience says, I'm not going to live that way. And so you see, when we sin against God and we turn against him, we owe him the obedience that we haven't paid him. First debt. The problem is, it doesn't take us long, even in our lives, in the experience of living, to we start uh, creating that debt. It comes fairly early on in life when your mommy says, don't do that. And we do it anyway, right? And we can see it in our children because they reflect us more than they reflect the image of God. So we see it, and we begin building this debt. You know the debt that you built up over the course of your life. So somehow, all of those debts of disobedience must be made up by obedience. That leaves us at a great disadvantage because we've already committed the act of disobedience. How do you make that up? How do you go back and obey when you should have? debt that thus can't be paid. But then there's the debt of justice. The debt of justice, which is that God has given us life and we've, we've abused that life. We've, we've, we've not lived as he called us to live. We've turned away from his way to our own way. And justice then says that, that God must take that life away. It's called death. So there's the debt of justice which leads to death, physical death, we see it, that's the symptom, spiritual death, which is forsakenness by God for all of eternity, hell. That's the dilemma in which we find ourselves. You see, that's what we need to be rescued from because we can't rescue ourselves. We, we can't live it. We can't go back and undo the past. And in fact, we don't really want to. Well, then that's sin. That's the problem of it. And we owe this debt of justice as well because of all of that. And so then the question is, who can rescue us from this life? And the answer is only Christ because he comes first as our representative. He represents us before God in his representation representation of us before God, what he does is, is he lives the life we should have lived. And so he obeys everywhere where we have disobeyed so that his righteousness, his obedience counts for our disobedience. So everywhere where we've sinned, he's obeyed. We can't go back and undo that. He as us for us can. He's our representative, so he obeys. And then secondly, he takes the justice that we deserve. It's called the wrath of God. And he takes that upon himself as our substitute, as our sacrifice. And so we're saved in Christ alone, meaning he's the only Savior, meaning no one else, not even ourselves, can save ourselves, only Christ. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And faith isn't something we do to merit this salvation. Oh, God says, you have faith, therefore I will save you. It isn't like that. It isn't something we do as a merit. Faith is exactly the opposite of meriting anything. Faith is a, an abandonment of any self-trust. Faith says, I can't, thus I trust you. In fact, I don't know about you, but 
maybe, I don't know if we teach this to our children, but we should. Uh, so if we haven't, children, learn it. <laughs> teach it to your kids. This little acrostic faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I take him. F-A-I-T-H, there you go, spelled it right. Forsaking all, I take, I trust, I take him. That's what faith is. It's forsaking all. It's, a, it's an abandonment. It's a, it's a throwing away. It's a casting off of all self-trust. That's what faith is. That's why it isn't a merit. It isn't a work at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite of that. It's an admission that I can't. That's why the scripture refers on various occasions to faith as a gift. It's, it's part of the package of salvation. It's part of what give, what, what, what's given to us. As Lauren was baptized this morning, as, as, as we think about God's grace, what we, what we recognize is the miracle of that grace, that the faith that she expressed this morning is faith that by the mystery of the sovereign grace of God was given to her for reasons that none of us know other than God is gracious. And he saved her. He gave her this gift of faith, Ephesians 2.8. It's by grace. It's by the grace of God that we're saved. It's a gift of his. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 speaks that it's been given to us. It's been graced to us. Not only to suffer, but to believe, you see. So it's a gift. So, so it's by faith alone. It's nothing we do. And thus, it's God's Grace, grace, as we know, is a gift. Grace means unmerited grace. For us, we know, is not only unmerited, not only undeserved, but ill-deserved. We deserve the opposite of what we get. And God gives to us because he's generous and he's gracious. He gives to us uh, this gift of his love, his kindness, of Jesus, of faith in him. And so we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What's this grace? Well, that's what we see here in this particular incident in the life of this man, Naaman. Take note, you did, I suppose, of who this man is. He was what we would call a self-made man, really. All that he had came by way, at least as he understood it, of his own achievements. Uh, here he was, it says, a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And so he's this great man of valor, it said. Um, uh, he, he has been when high, in high favor of his master, um, uh, because he was victorious in battle. So you get all that impression. He's influential. He's obviously wealthy. He has the ear of the king. He's dependent upon by the king, prime minister, if you will, in that sense, with him. Uh, assume that everyone in the, in the kingdom would have heard of him. If it was said that he was coming, everyone would sit up and take notice because Naaman is coming. They knew who he was. He just had this one thing called leprosy. And leprosy was a, a word that was used for a variety of skin diseases. We don't know the exact uh, uh, um, impact of that in his life, but clearly it was something he wanted delivered from. Clearly it was something that was affecting him. Clearly it was something that was noticeable in his life. And you have the suspicion in those days anything called leprosy would lead to his death. And so, so they, they, they realized all of this. And there just so happened to be this servant girl who worked for his wife, who was an Israelite, who knew of Elisha, knew of the power of God, and said, if only uh, Naaman, my master, would know of Elisha, then, then he could be cured, he could be, could be healed, you see. And so, so this set into, into play what probably what you and I would do as well. How can I get to Israel, and how can I get a healing from the people in Israel? And so you'd go about it the same way we go about everything else. How did he get where he is? By way of influence, by way of power, by, by way of bravery and all of that. And so he speaks this word to the king and the king says, I've got all the influence you need. I'll write you a letter to the king of Israel. You go from me to the most powerful person in Israel. I'll write you a letter of reference. That'll get you in. Take some money. Take all of this. Pay for it like we've always done and, and you'll get it. But that isn't the way it happened at all. It could only come by the grace of God. See, Naaman had been one, though he didn't know it at the time, who had already been a recipient of the grace of God. Notice a very interesting expression in this passage in verse 1. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because 
by him, that is by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Well, that is a very odd expression. We would expect it to say because the Lord had given victory to Israel. But here it says, by name, and God was at work in such a way that the Lord gave victory. He was sovereign over all, obviously. He's sovereign over every battle, whoever wins. It's the Lord who gives victory in that and defeat and so forth. God is in that. But, but the emphasis here is that the Lord had been working in Naaman's life already prior to anything that he would know about, anything he would even recognize or even acknowledge. It wasn't Naaman who said, oh, the Lord gave me victory here. But, 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 but. That's simply the truth. So the Lord had given victory so that he could be elevated to the place where he was, where he was in Syria. And not only that, in, in one of those raids, in one of those victories, they just so happened to capture a young girl who just so happened to work for his wife eventually as a, as a servant girl. And it just so happened that she showed up right about the time that everybody knew that Naaman had leprosy, didn't come before he got it, but and didn't come after he died, but, but in the midst of it. So here he was with leprosy. She was an Israelite. She knew the story. She knew of Elisha. And thus she could bring this word at that moment in time. Do you imagine all the things that had to take place and decisions and, and history for that moment to be, there it was. He didn't know about that. He didn't know about that grace that was at work even then, what God had done on his behalf. But Naaman gets this word, and as we said, he goes about this in the same way we would expect him to, in the same way he had gone about everything else. He goes into Israel, and he, and he brings this letter to uh, the king from the king, of a, from the king of Syria as his sort of uh, entree, and, and, and the king of Israel reacted in a way, no doubt, very differently than uh, Naaman and the king of Syria would have expected him to react. They thought he'd say, this is great. Give me all you have, got the letter, I'll make the arrangements, you will be healed. The king of Israel knew better. He knew he was powerless in the midst of all that. There wasn't another human being on the face of the earth who could compel him to do that which he could not do. There was not enough money in the world to buy that which he was being asked to give up, this healing. So there he was. Now, Elisha heard about this strong reaction of the king of Israel, his fear as he ripped his clothes and so forth and so on. That's the kind of thing in those days that made news. So Elisha knew that, plus he was a prophet. And so he sent word to the king, send him to me so that they'll get it about who God really is, that you can't buy him off. And what's fascinating here is Naaman comes to, to Elisha Elisha doesn't even answer the door. Now, I suspect that that happened, hadn't happened to Naaman for a long time. My suspicion is most of the time when Naaman was going to show up at a place, the people would be going, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and everything would be made ready for him, everything would be laid out, set up, all that kind of thing, because he was the most, second most important man in all of Syria, and Elisha didn't even answer the door. He just sent one of his servants with a word to him and said, go tell him to take a bath in the Jordan seven times. But he gave him the promise that you'll be cleansed if you do that. And Naaman was outraged by this. Because you see, in his mind... He was a man of influence. So surely he would get this healing because he had enough money, he had a letter of reference, he was who he was, and therefore clearly any god of any country would give him this healing because of who he, because of who he was. And the representative of this god of Israel didn't even give him the time of day, hardly it seemed. He thought at least the guy would come out and, and, and look at him and, and say the magic words over his leprosy and that it would be gone. But that didn't even happen. He just got this sort of servant to come and give him, this, give him this word. So he was quite angry over the whole situation. Now, now his servants, upon hearing uh, of his outrage and seeing him run off and, and head back to, 
to Syria, uh, they come to him and he says, don't go. Didn't you hear the promise? Didn't you understand? Now, there's, there's a, a couple of ways to translate this verse 13. The ESV does it one way. If you have an NIV or, or um, uh, a New American Standard version, it may translate it another way. There's, because there's a couple of different nuances here, and I'm not going to talk to you about Hebrew translation because that's outside my real field uh, or at least expertise. But, but there are two different nuances uh, in, in, in all of this. The, the, uh, the, the one nuance that we, fee- we find in, in the New International Version is this. His servants say to him, My father, if the prophets had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? In other words, they knew him. And they knew that if there was something that he could do that would be considered great, then when he got back to Syria, he could say, I did this, and the God of Israel gave me that. I did this, and it was sufficient to merit, to earn. That's the way I've lived my whole life. It also be translated this, that was a great thing that was said to you, not what you should do about bathing. Any, any idiot can go down to the Jordan and jump in seven times. I mean, that, that doesn't take any great skill by anyone. That's not anything of great, great uh, significance. You don't run back and say, guess what I did today? I jumped in the Jordan seven times. No one's really impressed. All they would say, that dirty river? Yuck, Right? The great thing was, you will be cleansed. Get it. Understand that. Now, the question is, of course, we know the answer to this. Why was Naaman so outraged? What was it? Well, it was his pride, wasn't it? It was his pride. He had earned his whole way. Now he can't earn anything from this God, and he's offended. It's his pride, you see, uh, is, is taking it. Because you see that he was going to find out what's the requirement, what's necessary, what's the requirement for me to receive this healing. And the response was, there's a non-requirement requirement. There is no requirement. You can't. What he was looking for was the one big thing, big thing, the one great thing he could do. And the only thing is, there's no great thing he could do. The great thing that needed to be done had to be done by God and God alone. He couldn't. What he really wanted to emphasize here is there's a difference between me and everybody else. I'm richer, I'm more influential, I I, I deserve it, therefore I'm different, so I should receive this healing regardless. And so I should get this because there's really a difference between me. And what he learned is there really is no difference. It really wasn't about him per se. It really didn't matter that he was wealthy or more influential, anything more than anyone else. All that he brought to the table was his leprosy. He brought nothing else. See, that's the thing with this, isn't it, very often? We, this grace is such a complete paradigm shift. It's such a complete change in our thinking that I don't know that we really ever quite get it. There's always more to it than we really, really get. No matter how long we live in it, no matter how much we receive it, no matter how long we we, we experience this grace, the older I get, and I'm getting older, the older I get, the more of it I realize I haven't gotten and I need to get, I need to understand. The more it comes to me, the more I see it, the deeper it goes, you see. This, this grace of God, you see. Uh, you remember the apostle James puts it like this, he's quoting the Proverbs, that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Because you see, the proud says, I can, I, I can really do this, but, but he says, no, 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 
It's this, this very grace of God, you see, that comes to us. In fact, Matthew speaks of this grace of God. I read it this morning in this, this parable of the, of the laborers. It's, it's one of those parables you read, and, and I think, and, and, you, and you kind of scratch your head, and you say, what's this really all about? And, and it's not about economics. It's not about how to run a business. If you're a businessman, don't pay everybody the same, all right? It's probably not a good strategy. Um, if you go to work for somebody and you show up late, don't ask for what the guy got in the beginning and say, well, it's in the Bible, you know? Um, you don't work as hard as somebody else. It's, it's just not a good, you know, way to kind of make your case to say, I should get what the other guy got. It's not about a minimum wage or a living wage. You can deal with that from a whole different perspective, how you understand those or don't. That's not what this is about. As I said before, it's not even about those who became Christians when they were, you know, young and lived their whole life as a Christian and going, well, somebody who makes a deathbed profession gets what I get and that's okay with me. It's not about that. It's about the unthinkable for us. We're all last. No one here is first. We're all last. We're the ones everyone's talking about. We're the ones everyone's grumbling about. How can they inherit the kingdom of heaven? Look at them. They haven't done nearly what we've done. They're nearly as good as we are. Look at them. That's us. We should be sitting, sitting marveling going, how did I inherit the kingdom of God? I just showed up. I haven't done anything. Yes. That's what Jesus means. That's what he meant when he, was, when he was receiving the little children and he said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven. Or, or when he would say, when he would say this, uh, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus was comparing the kingdom of heaven to children, he wasn't saying the kingdom of heaven is for those who are innocent. Because however cute they might be, little children are not innocent. What they are is dependent. It's the very nature of a child. They need. They can't. Because that's how you come into the kingdom. Poor in spirit. This, this whole story of Naaman was so offensive, even to the people in, in the days of Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 4, I don't have time to read all of this, but in, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, on a particular occasion, comes into the synagogue early in his ministry. He reads from the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah who is to come, and he says, today all of this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people marvel, and they think it's great. Then they start to think, but isn't this Joseph's son? And that seems to be a tipping point for Jesus, an indicator. He probably knew it before, but an indicator. They're not quite with me on this. They're not quite seeing that Joseph's son could be the Messiah. And then he comes back to them and says, I suppose you're going to want me to do all the miracles I did in Capernaum, but, but, but I'm not. I'm not. You don't believe. I'm not going to do them. And then he points to something that happened during the days of Elijah. He said, he said there are all kinds of widows, but, but Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath, this, this, this woman outside of Israel, and, and he blessed her. And, and there were all kind of leopards in Israel during the days of Naaman, but Naaman was the one who was healed. And they got so mad at him, they wanted to kill him. Why? Because they thought they were the insiders. They thought they were the ones who were deserving and how dare you take this healing outside to the undeserving? <laughs> and Jesus' point is, no, we're all, you're all undeserving. And they didn't like that. We don't like that. But that's grace, you see. fascinating as you read through the gospel, especially of Luke, what you find always is that, that those who are the outcasts are, effect, are attracted to Jesus, and he's attracted to them, and it's the insiders that aren't attracted to Jesus, and he doesn't really care for them that much either, it seems. 
There's this man, Simon, a Pharisee, his religious man. Remember, Jesus comes to his house. He gets all upset because there's this sinner who shows up, this woman who shows up and actually has the audacity to bless and touch Jesus. And, and, and so, so Simon gets all upset about that. And, and it's, yet this woman is attracted to Jesus not romantically, but, but spiritually. Why? Because she knows she can't. She knows she isn't. She knows he is. Simon's problem is that Simon thinks he is and that he can't, and Jesus is just another guy. And what's fascinating there is that Simon refers to this woman as the sinner, as a sinner. If Jesus only knew that this sinful woman had touched him, this, this sinner. And, and so the question for all of us is, how do we understand that expression, sinner? Is it for those who are bad and those who are immoral and, and those who, who, who are, are, are unbelievers and, and those who are, who, who are outside, they? Or me? Me, we're the sinners. So we read through the Gospel of Luke, and there's this priest that passes by on the other side, but this Samaritan. There's this Pharisee who's praying in this temple, but then there's this tax collector. There's this son who runs away from his father and finally returns, and there's this older brother Each situation is the outside of the outcast, the sinner who embraces Jesus and is embraced by him. And this one who thinks he is, isn't. That is the very grace of God. Now, it's interesting here, of course, in this passage that, that, that the grace transforms. Uh, Naaman uh, comes back to Elisha and says, I've got all this I want to give to you. And Elisha says, I can't take it. You don't understand. If I take it, it blows everything. If you for a moment, Naaman, think that you had anything to do at all in your cleansing, it will destroy everything. You need to realize it wasn't your money and your influence and your letter or any of that. I want you to leave here today, Naaman, flabbergasted, shocked, amazed, wondering why me, if I take your money, that won't happen. You will leave thinking, I know why me, because I met the requirement, because I did the great thing, and because I am different. Amen. I want you to leave here realizing you met no requirement. I want you to realize you did no great thing. And I want you to realize you're no different. I want you to be amazed. Because that's the grace of God. So what did Naaman do? He said, all right, don't take my money. Give me some dirt. Two mules full. Why? Because he said, when I, when I go back to my country, I'm going to be forced to, to uh, uh, worship in this temple, but I'm not going to worship. I want this Israel dirt. I want to make out of it, myself, tabernacle. And upon it, make sacrifices to the one and true God. So even there, no matter what it looks like at the moment, I will worship the true and living God. Just give me some dirt. And just so we get the point, God raises up this Gehazi. Gehazi doesn't like this at all. He, he sees a way to profit from this. And, and he thinks that this foreigner, this outsider, this one who didn't meet any requirement, he did no big thing, who, who, was, who was really thought himself to be different and all that, he, he, he says, this isn't right we need to get something from him. And he figures out a way to do this. So he lies and he runs to Nahum and he says, there's these two sons of prophets, these two prophet uh, you know, students who, who, who've just shown up and Elisha doesn't have anything to help them with and he wants, so, so, so this really isn't for Elisha, this really is for them. And so, so just give us this little bit of all that you've brought. And, and, and of course, Nahum, he doesn't, he's, he's, he's a born again, generous, 
cleansed guy. He's thinking, this is great. What do you want? This is fine with me. You want one talent? I'll give you two. You want, you know, this? I'll give you that. This is great. So he just gets sucked into this whole thing. And so Gehazi takes it back and he, and he hides it, of course, because it was really for him. And he goes back to Elisha. He should never lie to a prophet. Right? You got a guy who tells you all kinds of things, and, and then you lie to him. It's like, hello. So he says, so Elisha said, well, where did you go? And you go, nowhere. I've just been reading in my room. You know, I'm fine. Praying. Oh, he said, no, 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 no. My spirit went somewhere. Yeah, it went with you. When you were getting all of this. How dare you? How dare you ever give anyone the impression that that which comes from the grace of God isn't free to them? He became a leper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He said, this is my body given for you. This isn't you giving to me. This is me giving for you. The debt you incurred, this is me giving for you. You can't give to me. The same way he took the cup, again after giving thanks. This too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That debt, justice, I'll take it, I'll pay it. You don't pay, I pay. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Every time you see this, you are to remember it's free to me it costs him it's by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone when you come to this table this morning what you will be admitting to yourself and to everyone here is that you couldn't meet any requirement to save your own soul. What you're admitting is that you did no big thing to save your own soul. And what you're admitting is there's absolutely no difference between you and anyone else. So if you're thinking this morning, I really can't come because I looked at my life. What requirement are you trying to reach? What big thing are you trying to do? What difference do you think there is in you? It's by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. We get that, everything changes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we would get it. We would get it. Deeper and deeper. So I pray that you would set this bread and this juice aside in such a way We would know that Christ met the requirement, that Christ did the big thing, that Christ is the difference, and that we would rest in him and him alone. Free us, God, from thinking there must be something to do, there must be some difference that has to be. 
humble us. Enable us to dip in the Jordan. Cleanse us. This, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The words are this. This is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves. doesn't really matter about anybody else understands themselves to be the sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy and grace of God. Sovereign, it's up to him. Grace, he is gracious. And all those who receive and depend upon Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners, you desire then to live a life consistent with that, that is a life of confession and repentance and faith. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, remember grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Please come.
throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me Savior and 